And so governments all over the world are going to compete for labor, capital, entrepreneurs, ideas, just like they do today. But they're going to they're going to move into a system where that competition is based on the truth. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin. I'm your host, Brady Swenson. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Jeff Booth, author of Price of Tomorrow, and Austin Hill, cypherpunk and co-founder of Blockstream, join us. We held a great Q&A discussion on Twitter Spaces after the episode and have included it here for you. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back to Swan Signal Live, everyone. We've got a really fun one for you today with Austin Hill and Jeff Booth. But first, a little shill from Swan. Uh, We have launched the Bitcoin Canon. As you know, we are dedicated to Bitcoin education. And this project is really cool. There's so much Bitcoin education content out there now. We've been blessed with an absolute explosion over the past few years both in quantity and quality, uh, it's really amazing. So what we wanted to do is put in a curation layer uh, on top of all of that content to help you find the best stuff. So we've recruited some of the greatest minds in Bitcoin to curate topical, you know, specific rabbit holes uh, for you to dive down into. There's a little intro video, for instance, from Lynn Alden uh, about Bitcoin and energy. She talks for a minute or two about why the rabbit hole is important and what she you know, hopes that you might get out of it. And then there's a series of seven, eight articles, gives you the amount of time, an estimate on how long it'll take you to get through every article. You can check them off and keep track of how far you are uh, down the rabbit hole. So check that out at swanbitcoin.com slash canon. And that's canon with one N, although if you use the two Ns, it'll get you to the, the right place. But a uh, canon with one N, meaning a collection of, of great content. Um, also want to make sure everyone knows that Swan is international. Uh, we, we're, we're in pretty much every country in the world. There's uh, some countries we can't operate in because of uh, U.S. laws, but uh, we're in most countries. You can create a Swan account from wherever you are and uh, wire money into your account to buy Bitcoin. Uh, we're uh, really excited about that, and we have a lot of uh, customers from countries all over the world, uh, both business accounts and individuals. Bitcoin 2022 conference, the biggest conference in the industry, one of the biggest conferences in the world. Uh, This year, 30,000 Bitcoiners will be descending on Miami. Uh, As you, I'm sure you've heard about it because, you know, we're blanketing all the podcasts and uh, shows and and everything uh, talking about this conference, but it truly is an amazing experience. I went in 2019 and last summer as well. In 2019, it was really just an absolute game changer in my career in Bitcoin. It really uh, set me up to end up getting this job at Swan. So if you are looking to break into the industry, absolutely must be down in Miami. If you haven't bought a ticket yet, 30% off if you pay in Bitcoin, another 10 off if you uh, use the promo code SWAN on checkout. Uh, Also, just want to make sure everyone knows we're also on Twitter Spaces. Hey to everyone who's listening in on Twitter Spaces. We'll be uh, moving over to spaces for a Q&A with Jeff and Austin. So as you are listening to this episode, whether you're on YouTube or on spaces, think of some questions that you have for these guys. It's a great opportunity for you to come up on stage and uh, get in a question with these two legends. And with that, we will dive into this episode. So Austin Hill is here. He's uh, a cypherpunk. He's a co-founder of Blockstream. He's an investor, entrepreneur. 
and Jeff Booth, uh, entrepreneur, investor, and author of Price of Tomorrow. Welcome, gents. Welcome. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm glad to get you guys together. Jeff is in a hotel room, so we may have some, some spotty Wi-Fi, but looks like you're back. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, man. So we are going to talk about uh, deflationary money and exponential technology today and really dive in deep on some of the exponential technology that is on the precipice of drastically changing humanity and the way we live and interact with each other and the possibilities for our future. Uh, it's going to blow a lot of people's minds if you're not really following what's going on in these rapidly advancing technologies that are in the next couple of decades going to hit that you know, S-curve on the uh, you know, just going vertical uh, to really do crazy things uh, for us as a species. But let's just take a little time at the top here to take a look at the state of monetary and geopolitical affairs, uh, just because they, you know, they're kind of advancing uh, exponentially right now, which we capture by the phrase we use a lot in Bitcoin, gradually then suddenly. So Jeff, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, what's your take on these precipitous events uh, in the wake of your homelands uh, actions uh, in response to the trucker protests? And then, of course, what followed um, uh, in, in a greater extent, uh, the financial warfare that's being waged on Russia right now. So what does all this foretell in your mind? Yeah, and, and you know this, Brady, just because it's what I predicted what would happen from my book, right? We, we live in, we, we have two different systems uh, colliding into each other and the consequences of the, the, that collision are pretty predictable. Not pretty predictable, they're very predictable. So even, and I just tweeted out this this morning, you, you see uh, Saudi Arabia wanting to price oil or considering pricing oil in one. Well, at the same time, um, the one is pegged to the U.S. currency, and at the same time, China has to massively ease to 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 try to prevent a credit unwind in their own country, and U.S. is going to have to ease as well. It just it's just a matter of timing. All of these things, it's just a merry-go-round that gets worse and worse and worse, and all of these things increase geopolitical risk around the world, um, and a lot of people vote for that increased geopolitical risk because they believe that the country that they're in is helping them. Um, and in, in actual fa fact, what's happening is money is being, there's trust is being lost in money. And, and the acceleration of that trend has to continue. So, so what you can expect throughout the world is this, it's, it's, it's hard for me to, I hate seeing it, especially when you predicted it. Um, I hate seeing what's what's happening to society getting ripped apart because of this. I hate, furthermore, um, people in their own little silo of information thinking that they're right in that silo. Well, it's something fundamentally that's that, uh, that's that's breaking, and it's trust in currencies that's breaking. So you have to ask yourself, what currency would you trust? Um, what would you would anyone ever trust a national secure currency again to for all other currencies to be pegged to? And I see it as highly unlikely. And then how would that game get reset? And so what's happening is Bitcoin is emerging and resetting that game as more and more people start to see what's happening. Austin, your thoughts on all of this? Um, 
So obviously Jeff has written about this so, so intelligently and uh, it's why I really felt his book was one of the breakthrough books in Bitcoin education because it really came at it from looking at the way the system is rigged and understanding that money on a global level and global debt is a system and the system has rules and when certain people follow the rules and other people do not follow the rules, there are always winners and losers. And no one likes to play in a game where the game is rigged against you. If we were to sit down and start playing a game of Monopoly, and on the very first turn, as people pick their pieces, three people get an accelerated payout every time they go around the board, and everyone else gets their money debased every time they go around the board, how many people would stick around for, for a full game of Monopoly? You would give up the minute those roles were de determined because you were like, why should I play in this rigged game? But very few people understand that the, ec the economy they're playing in is similarly rigged. And what Bitcoin and what I think has accelerated recently with the Internet, uh, with certainly Bitcoin as a catalyst changed people's understanding of money. But also uh, the recent pandemic, the money printing, we saw people actually commenting, if you can print so much money, if you can print $4 trillion out of free air, why not just print uh, the money to pay my taxes for me? And that's a very legitimate question when you don't understand where money comes from or how it works. And so I think people are beginning to wake up and realize, okay, there's got to be a cost to all this free money. And if the cost is at my expense, if I'm not sitting at the front, front of that money trough, getting handouts or uh, participating in a rigged system, then what am I playing this system for? And as more people choose to either opt out or choose to protect their savings through diversification into an asset like Bitcoin, we are seeing the acceleration of these currency wars and nation states beginning to say, we need to make remake the system so it's fair for us. And in that system, um, unfortunately, when the rules of the game get remade and people opt out and say, I'm unwilling to play the game, a lot of people end up being left holding the bag. Stuff they've invested in, like their boardwalk uh, houses and hotels, stop mattering. And that's a very hard message to give to people. So um, certainly interested in everything we can do to ease the, the pain of that change. Because anytime a system is dr dr drastically re rewritten with winners and losers, people either fight it or people suffer great consequences denying that the system is changing underneath their uh, feet. So this brings up a question that we were actually talking about in Cafe Bitcoin this morning on Spaces, which is our every weekday uh, show. We roll for a couple hours and have some great guests on. It's it's turned into something pretty cool. But we were talking this morning about UBI. And if, you know I think most Bitcoiners probably agree that UBI is not a great idea for various reasons. It's a big, giant step towards socialism. It's, uh, you know, creates government dependency, et cetera. Uh, but we're in an interesting time where, you know, the wealthy have essentially been given UBI, UBI for the rich for the last 50 years, which the Cantillon effect, uh, you know, is basically another way to describe the Cantillon effect in my mind. Uh, it might be considered like more ethical as we're transitioning from a dying currency to a new, more stable uh, one in Bitcoin. 
that we should distribute that dying money directly to the populace in an effort to try to map the you know the wealth you know make less wealth disparity as we're mapping the wealth over to the bitcoin system does that make sense do you guys either of you have a thoughts on that um i think if you did it on to bitcoin to accelerate the progress to bitcoin gave people bitcoin on on that path it might directly. be a way uh, directly it might be a way to accelerate but either either way what austin said and and if you look at that game board that analogy to monopoly um i would surmise in a different way what what would happen is people wouldn't play the game very long they would kick over the game board and what you see around the world is 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 governments and and people kicking over the game board because they know it's they they're starting to see how it's rigged um and the only thing that can happen is uh, on that is governments are going to increase their their power at the expense of yours increase take your individual rights and freedoms um away is, uh, so when you connect that to ubi and what will what people will vote for brady they will vote for ubi like this mm -hmm. is and, and why why central bank never can never keep its independence is the majority of people force the loss of that independence um mm -hmm. through uh, because the the politicians will will Will, will, will take that function and politicians will be in control of the central bank, which is really what you're seeing today. And, but this is, this is a global phenomenon. And so when people are looking through their own lens at a, at a U.S. phenomenon and what U.S. should do for their, own, for their own interests, they're missing the negative externalities of that happening around the world. And so, so uh, there might be some ways to bridge that divide, um, the, um, but it's going to be, Austin said it, it's going to be an ugly transition because it reprice, essentially Bitcoin over time is repricing everything into Bitcoin is, a, is what I suspect is, 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 is happening. And if you're early, you're, um, you're winning on that repricing event. And if you're late, you're going to be, you're going to be really hurt by that repricing event. And so I think the desire or certainly among some of the uh, you know, singularity folks or the extropians or some of these people who believe in exponential tech, there's been a desire or an idea that some form of UBI, I mean, Jerry Yang was very popular for his ideas about uh, providing uh, some sort of supplement income to address the job loss and the changing technology nature. Um, the danger of that is once again, when you are playing with fiat money and you're taxing one group and paying it to another, is it just accelerates the drain and it accelerates the speed at which you're going to hit this wall, uh, which is the exponential debt uh, and how fast you're reaching that point where your debt servicing and your debt costs just become unsustainable and you have to do some sort of uh, reset. And so... And that being done at a country level is one issue, but when it's being done, as Jeff mentioned, on an international level, where there are even greater winners and losers, where you have certain countries who are dependent on the U.S. dollar, who uh, you know cannot connect uh, and cannot reach uh, other people, then they actually do have uh, a dis disincentive to participate in the system. And that's very, very dangerous. Um, I think there are other ways to create incentives 
that are more aligned with fair and equitable starts. And that's where I think Bitcoin can provide that. And I think some of the models there are some of the, if you look at some of the native, uh, native uh, or first nation uh, uh, reserves who actually got casino gaming license, some of them provided the members of their tribe with just equal access to the proceeds. And it was just this, uh, you know, free money. And they thought less than desirable social outcomes from that. And then there were other people who actually uh, participated in an incentive program whereby they got those incentives if they participated in some sort of uh, improvement, going to university or participating in and that's where I think the real advantage lies is aligning incentives with Bitcoin where you create a shared capital. Yeah, that all makes sense. Uh, I really appreciate the discussion. I, I do have one last question sort of in this section of the show. Um, I've been reading this book called uh, The Mandibles, which is uh, a fictionalized book uh, about the basically decline of uh, the global monetary standard. So it's it's history. It's all of history as it exists now, but projected to about ten years in the future. What's happening? There's a speech by the the president in this book, a fictional president that announces uh, this, these drastic measures for, to prevent uh, this hyperinflationary event from happening. Uh, and also it's in the midst of uh, what he calls an IMF gone rogue. So sort of a, a financial attack on the US dollar. Um, so I'll just I, I kind of sh uh, shorten this to summarize it. I'll read a few kind of excerpts from it. So this is the president speaking. What is at risk is the almighty dollar itself. A series of carefully timed financial dominoes have been toppled by an international monetary fund gone rogue. They created the Bancor intended to replace the dollar as the global reserve currency. I believe this is a global fiscal coup. Trading suspended on the commodity and stock markets. Uh, Americans, uh, to, Americans holding Bancor's will be considered an act of treason. No more than $100 can be used for payments outside of the United States. All gold reserves, including gold ETFs and the like, will be sold to the U.S. Treasury as patriotic forfeitures. <laughs> uh, it will be a criminal offense that will be punished with no less than 10 years in prison to hold gold. This cartel has raised the interest rates on our debt, and in response, we have declared a universal reset. We are compelled to put aside the obligations of the past. All treasury notes and bonds are hereby null and void. Um, so Jeff, could this speech prove prophetic? <laughs> yeah, so, so this is what's happening, right? And, and how do you run financial repression on a, on, on a society? You lock them in, they can't leave, and they have to transact in your currency. And then you can reprice everything in that in that currency. And this is why. And if you're in Hong Kong and you're demonstrating against uh, China, um, as it moves to, and takes away individual rights and freedoms, how do you get out? How do you move your money out? This is. And when once that happens, and you're shut off from a banking system or locked into a banking system that can be repriced, that is what happens. But this is a global phenomenon, and that's what I said when. 
the, the, your individual rights and freedoms go away with the concentration of this power. Um, and it's a, it's a natural phenomenon. Brady, if you even go a little deep, deeper, if you th think um, from a from a division of labor standpoint, so free market and the division of labor essentially created a whole bunch of ideas that we in turn we couldn't see when before those ideas came into view. They were always from the outside against the system, and and then when they appeared. We either used the products that, that because they provided so much value um, or we didn't and the company died. So that free market and division of labor is responsible for just about everything we take for granted in our lives today. And it's it's based on trust. So that division of labor is is um, if I'm a doctor and somebody else is a, is a farmer, then my labor, my division of labor matters just as much as they, I could, if I had to do everything, farmer, doctor, everything, I couldn't be a, a specialist in a field. Um, but it requires trust in a currency. And so when you break the trust in the currency and some people are rewarded uh, unfairly versus, versus others, you break this trust globally. Now, how do you regain that trust? And what you're talking about is one way to try to regain that trust is pit nation state against nation state and say, no, it's there. It's that other person that's that other nation state. It's their problem. They're attacking us, but that, but we trade with people all over the world. Our supply chains are all over the world that we can, we, we need to trust that division of labor all over the world. That's one level of this at the next level of this is Technology is advancing in a, in a way that is reducing that division of labor so that, so that the, the cost, the marginal cost of production is falling to the technology cost, which is in a lot of cases free. It means less labor and it means prices should fall as a result. They're not falling because of, because of the same thing, the manipulation of money, which is destroying the trust and breaking all, all bonds. It, it, what, it, what ends up happening is it breaks our social contract and it breaks the contract that we have between each other around that division of labor. So Austin, in like a scenario like this, um, you know, this is a very, very real possibility. It's happened already in the past with FDR and gold. And let's in this speech, just consider the fact that we can replace gold with Bitcoin. Um, if the United States does threaten 10 years in jail and whatever else um, for holding Bitcoin, and not selling it to the United States, um, you know, there's there's probably a core of Bitcoiners and cypherpunks who would hold strong and have prepared for such action. Uh, but most, I would say, most Bitcoiners or most people holding Bitcoin probably would not have prepared for that action and would just capitulate to the government. If something like that does happen, uh, how would that affect Bitcoin's uh, viability as a peer-to-peer -peer money? Well, certainly there are threat models and there are scenarios whereby a concentrated effort by government to attack the on-ramps and the off-ramps. So, so, sorry, I, I, I'm getting a weird echo here. 
Okay. Well, he's uh, trying to fix that. Yeah, let's bring him back in. How's it now? Brady, you want me to take that while he's trying to fix it? Yeah, please. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, with Game Three Ethereum on Bitcoin, every nation state that tries to block it creates more incentive for others to accept it. Um, I so well well there are threat models. Well, 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 you could see that a nation state blocking Bitcoin, like the U.S. government. It's the U.S. government is made up of individual people um, and individual states that make make that up. I can't imagine a world where the U.S. government says we're blocking Bitcoin and we're we're stopping, and Texas says yes. I can't imagine that, uh, that, that, that world. I see a, a way higher probability that the United States breaks up if they try. Interesting. Um, and and um, and and more so. But but again, let's take that threat model where where all governments around the world agree and say we're gonna we're gonna all block this. To what end? And how do they win? Because because by doing that, by, by doing so, you would have to, let's even say on repricing to gold, who owns the most gold is Russia, China, and, and the US. So let's say those three get together and say, we're going to reprice to gold. It doesn't seem like something the rest of the world would go along with. Um, reprice to gold. Um, and because repricing to gold, and then... Um, and then pegging currencies to what, right? And, um, and so what's happening right, right now is the loss of a peg to a hard currency is allowing every country to float their own currency and, and manipulate for their own population gain or geopolitical gain at the expense of another population. It, I, and, and while that might be an outcome, well, that might uh, might might happen. You can't say it's a zero probability event. Um I don't. It can't fix this problem. It could. It could create a whole bunch of havoc. We could go to World World War Three. There could be a repricing on top of uh, gold or something like that, on the end of that, and then we could start the whole thing over again. Bitcoin, and that's a that's the thing that's so so fundamentally different about Bitcoin that people don't really, I think, really understand. If and it's really a simple concept. If the free market and the division of labor um, is responsible for all of those ideas that we couldn't see beforehand, is responsible for all of uh, um, all of our the growth of humanity, um, and and we can't predict out of uh, out of a, uh, out of the current environment very well. We're we're really bad at predicting. Um, then what that means is if you consolidate all of that up to saying a central power that predicts for us, then we lose all of the ideas that generate our, our, our gain as humanity. Yeah. And, and so that, those, those ideas are us. Those ideas using them is that for the free market that's responsible for everything. And so, so it's pretty natural that, so I want to just connect that to this. Throughout history, if you could, if you could um, corrupt a money for your own citizens' benefit versus others, uh, other people's uh, expense, 
history says you will. Your mandibles quote says history says you it is you will. It's not a yeah. you might. And so that's what's different about Bitcoin. It, for, it takes that out of our hands and we, we wouldn't choose this adventure. We wouldn't choose. We wouldn't choose where we're going to connect this to next to the exponential layer. We wouldn't choose to say, I want my salary to go down next year a little bit, and but my time to go up. We wouldn't make that choice. We would. We want. We want to. We'll vote for people who say we can. We'll keep giving you money. And so when when you when we think about the us versus them and everything else, and what's created, ask any friend who would vote for somebody who stood up and said, oh, we're going to stop printing and, and, and everything is going to collapse to the ground. Right. Right. Welcome back, Austin. Sorry about that. Hopefully this is much better. Yeah, this is great. So uh, just in time to kind of move on to singularity and tech and uh, I'm excited about this. So I'll, I'll kick it off with you and just define for, our audience, what is a singularity? Uh, I'll just a uh, quick background on the word itself. Werner Vinge uh, coined the phrase, I think, in a 1993 essay called The Coming Technological Singularity. I became familiar with it in Ray Kurzweil's book from 2005, The Singularity is Near. Uh, both great reads that I just wanted to recommend if anybody wants to uh, get into the, you know, the meat of this. But Austin, what is uh, the singularity? Well, a lot of people have different definitions, but uh, the one I've always subscribed to is uh, some sort of event horizon. So similar in uh, black holes or physics, there's a point of, upon which the gravitational pull of the black hole is so high that uh, light and anything else cannot escape it. Um, and so in technological or exponential technology, it's a point on an exponential curve where you go straight vertical. And as you be go, go straight vertical, it doesn't mean that everything is available instantaneously. It's that you can no longer predict the speed at which change is occurring because change is occurring so fast on a vertical curve that really all things become theoretically possible within very short timeframes. So the theoretical intersection of the... Kurzweil and many others exponential tech singularity event will be the combination of uh, deep, deep, deep AI or AGI, so artificial general intelligence, um, meeting with nanotech and full programmable atomic size ma material, meeting with the biotechnology and essentially the programming of synthetic biology and uh, you know, living materials the same way we program software. So once we can program the physical environment, we can program our biological environment, and we have computers that are thinking at a level that is exponential and growing through AI and AGI, pretty much most problems change the, the solution space of every problem and the problems that those technologies introduce just take on a totally different order of magnitude. So things like genetic immortality become possible, um, human modification, uh, even addressing some issues around uh, climate or uh, programming of our natural environment. Um, when you have, you know, when your ability, your ability to put up, uh, you know, seawalls to protect uh, 
a city that's might be facing rising seawaters is based off how fast can you program intelligent sand that can self-form into a totally impenetrable wall. Um, all of a sudden, the solution set starts to become very different to a problem that seemed insurmountable maybe five or 10 years before. And these all bring with them incredible promise for humanity, but they also bring incredible risks if they're not governed or potentially intelligently deployed so that they benefit society at large versus benefiting the few. Yeah, great setup. Jeff, do you have anything there? Yeah, no, that's that's why I wrote the book because those two islands weren't being able to see, weren't able to see. Like I would listen to to people in the technology space, and I'm in the technology space all the time. It, it, um, in fact, some of the people Austin just met, mentioned talking about the companies they were finding to create the next trillion dollar opportunity, not realizing that that this is so deflationary. It takes out so much labor that there were that there if there's a trillion dollar opportunity the only reason there's a trillion dollar opportunity is because we have a million a multi a system that must concentrate all that wealth into few few hands because it's being manipulated and and those two camps couldn't see each other the monetary camp versus or the ec, ec, economy camp versus the technology singularity camp and i and i'm sitting in i'm chairman of a bunch of different companies and i'm seeing this tech expand uh it, it when, when you see when you see stuff at the front edge and what's what austin's talking about you realize oh, how and you, and you also realize how deflationary this is that most of the deflation is in front of us most of and and there's a way to stop that concentrate all power into to our overlords that that then we, we become um slaves in that system there that is one way that's and that might be the wef model um they might have even seen the same thing that i wrote about and said okay well how do we control this which would be a natural response um i just i i suspect the free market is a better control of that because the free market allows that abundance to be broadly distributed so let's take a look at a few of these technologies a little bit deeper uh, so nanotechnology, for instance, is the you know precision manufacture of materials at the nano scale. Um, Eric Drexler wrote about this uh, in Engines of Creation, um, and Feynman even discussed this idea back in 1959. Uh, in, there, in his uh, speech, there's plenty of room at the bottom. So it's been thought about for a long time, and the idea is basically that you can build a machine atom by atom. So the input are raw, uh, you know, materials from the, you know, periodic table of elements uh, into a machine that is then uh, used to construct materials uh, atom by atom, something like a, akin to a Star Trek replicator. Uh, so is this something, um, what, what is the latest on the nanotechnology front? And is this something that you think is even, is actually possible? I mean, it's physically possible, but it's actually human uh, invention possible or AI possible. It's happening today. Oh, so, yeah, right yeah, now. We already have new material science that is based off uh, nano, nanotech assembly. It's not being done with precision AI robotic nanobots yet. Um, but it is being done with uh, 
precision engineering at the nanotech level to create uh, advanced carbon nanotubes and to create new processors. Uh, we've already seen, you know, some very real examples of, you know, replicator style, uh, you know, technology being deployed. Um, so this material is absolutely there and in a very short time frame because of the pace at which we're advancing, whatever's not there today, if it's predicted to be there in the next six to eight years, I would cut that by half because of the speed at which we're learning. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Because when you add when you add artificial intelligence to this prediction and, and speed of cycle, it's creating more and more information. That information is learning on itself, and the rate the rate of learn, uh, learning is exploding. And it's there today. Like this is it, it, some of the these are products today that people use today. Um, they just don't know. They they, uh, they just uh, don't know it. It's yeah, a, it's, it'll advance into every single field. Right. Yeah. I mean, if the uh, imagine the efficiency gains, the price, the cost decreases of manufacturing any material, the decentralization of the manufacturing process. Uh, as people gain put these things in their in their homes, uh, it, it's it, the possibilities are crazy. But it, but it, even if you think about the materials, because those are the things that we won't see, right? We see the, those things that change change our lives. That all of a sudden, where did that come from? It came from, and that learning space is happening at such rates. So, so just use we use steel in our homes or lumber in our homes, but some of this technology is going to radically change uh, change that, provide better better structures, but um, and it'll come out of left field. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So, I mean, could could it also help with recycling materials? Could there be disassemblers that take uh, something you know that's not being used anymore apart to its atomic level and then uh, created something brand new using that uh, those resources? I suspect that's why that's why the free market is so important. Finding which ones work. Yeah, because 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 entrepreneurs. You, what you do, what I do in a business is where's the best opportunity to create the most value for people or society writ large. And, and you go to the space that has the most opportunity because it has the most margin for the most time. And all of these technologies just naturally do that to be able mm -hmm. to solve the most pressing issues as a result of the free market. And it's just a natural function. Right. And one of the great dangers right now that's occurring in, in some of these spaces is there are certain countries that have a very different regulatory model of, of, around the emergence of new technologies, either because they take a uh, very centralized government in terms of, you know, China coming in and saying, for instance, we're going to build a hospital in four days. We're going to build, uh, I think they recently, I saw a prediction that they're building 220 new nuclear reactors in the next decade. And they're down to a cost of $200 million per nuclear reactor. So when you start talking about energy independence, the, the United States has not built a new nuclear reactor in what, 60 years, 70 years. Um, so there is, there are certain advantages to system countries or ecosystems that do allow a more rapid pace of development. And the danger is some of those technologies emerge and become dominant in a form of government that actually it does support autocracies or is concentrated on 
enslaving its population as opposed to setting its population free. Right. And so it's why it's so critical that uh, most modern democratic nations actually start thinking about not only fixing the money supply, but also making a huge uh, commitment to investing in core R&D and science, either by supporting entrepreneurs and getting out of the way and allowing the free market to actually do its job, uh, or by providing certain incentives, similar to like XPRIZE rewards, where the government can actually come in and say, you know what, look at what energy uh, dependency has cost us as a nation. We've spent trillions of dollars on wars. We've spent, uh, you know, very costly foreign policy. What would it be worth to be truly energy independent with fission technology, with uh, a grid 2.0? What if you were to put half of that amount that was spent badly into X prizes? Entrepreneurs would line up and yeah. go crazy delivering solutions. Here, here's an example to... Uh, to... Um, $25,000 per kilowatt orbit. Um, SpaceX, private ca company, that's today down to $1,000 per kilogram. And why they, why space is being explored and why you're able to put us to be able to, to kind of break the cartel around <laughs> um, underground optics and you, now you can decentralize everything from, um, from space because a private company brought that uh, brought that price curve broke the back of the price curve um, because it couldn't been it would it wouldn't have been able to be done before. Um, the next uh, uh, SpaceX newest uh, kind of launching in 2023, 2024, um, their new uh, is going to bring that down to two hundred dollars per kilogram. That's crazy. And those those changes open up. Those changes going up from $25,000 per kilogram to $200 per kilogram open up totally different opportunities. And it couldn't have solved, we couldn't have solved problems the way we used to solve problems before. It's like laying telephone lines before, before wireless. Um, and, and, and so when you're in the system thinking we need more telephone lines, you build more telephone lines. When you th see the space from a different type of opportunity space against the cost curve, it opens up different markets. And unfortunately, some of the greatest advancements that society, I think, would benefit from and needs are some of the systems that are the most highly regulated, uh, plagued with entrenched bureaucracies and the hardest to innovate in. These are areas like uh, government, uh, healthcare, energy, uh, we, one of the venture capital funds I was associated with, uh, looked at and actually made an investment in a horizontal, uh, drone drilling company that essentially was talking about moving, uh, utility lines, power lines, and, uh, cabling lines on, into, uh, you know, very long horizontal drills. And they were talking about a 5,000 X, uh, cost, uh, reduction in the cost per mile of doing horizontal drilling for you know, essentially moving the grid underground or uh, being able to uh, extend and drill through mountains and drill through materials that previously you could not go through. And when you look at the economics and you looked at the thesis for investment, one of the hardest things to get over was most of the business around this was controlled by utility companies who have no interest in changing the problem as we've seen you know in the 
you know, West Coast of the United States, where forest fires and bad utility lines are just a repeat cycle that they've caused bankruptcy of the power company out there through lawsuits, yet they just go through a bankruptcy and they rewash. Um, it was similar with the airline industries that run just this horribly uneconomical model and it plagued airline innovation because no one wanted to build small electric planes that changed the airline industry because it was fixed in this very broken model that depended on subsidies and was allowed to avoid the consequences of normal business failure. And that's what happens when you corrupt the money supply. That's what happens when you uh, allow bureaucracies to get so entrenched where, you know, the cost of delivering healthcare ends up becoming 80% more paperwork and insurance and litigation avoidance costs rather than actual delivery of the service. And those systems need to be changed so dramatically if uh, democratic nations have a chance to get ahead of this exponential curve on technology and actually provide some uh, trading cards on a global basis because we will be in a war of technology and that war will be fought against regimes who have invested in the technology and don't necessarily believe in freedom, uh, freedom of speech, civil liberties, or some of the things that I think many of us take for granted. So a couple of comments there on like, let's, let's look at a couple other pieces of tech uh, to share just with the audience because it's rather incredible and mind-blowing what's happening. One is that since you brought up nuclear fission, there is actually progress being made on nuclear fusion, nuclear fusion as well um, with uh, new materials being created with, uh, that does not require, for instance, uh, like strong magnets uh, are more efficient. Um, I was listening to David Friedberg on the All In podcast, and he was saying that uh, nuclear fusion could uh, provide such energy efficiency that there's you know 170 terawatt hours uh, consumed by the planet. I think each year uh, could be in a nuclear fusion sort of Taurus uh, um, device. A 10 by 10 by 10 cube of water could power the planet at that at that level. Uh, so I'm not sure if that's true. I just heard it last week on, or a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. But if I don't know if you guys uh, know much about this fusion stuff, but it's uh, it's absolutely amazing. So I, I'm going to just tackle that in a different way, if you don't mind, Brady. And that's yeah, so, absolutely. So when I wrote the book, I wrote about the things that are uh, kind of in line, not 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 the things that are going to come out of left field. So what's the prediction on the kind of what's the just the trend line? What Austin is talking about and what you just talked about are along that trend line, there are going to be a whole bunch of other things that are going to accelerate that you can't see, I can't see, governments can't see. They're going to yeah. come to market. They're going to change everything again at a, at a rate we can't keep up to. And so if you believe that that, that should be taken from the free market and concentrated, if we can't see them ourselves... And just like you couldn't see the Apple, the iPhone before BlackBerry, if you believe that there's one all-powerful person who can see everything mm -hmm. and that, that we should concentrate all power in government and they should control everything else, then, that, then, then that's what an existing system, if you keep moving it, but it removes all of that from the free market because somebody has to choose for us. Sure. Um, Fred, uh, Fred asked in the in the discussion. He asked. Uh, he said, 
do you, what you really educate? He asked me, is the consciousness running whatever decisions? Uh, and do you see it, do you see this? And I think that's where Austin and I agree. And I think that's with where I agree with most of the, uh, with many people in the Bitcoin community. If you see this whole system, it's a system change, which we are unlikely to see from, from our own seat in the system, but it's all of our ideas. And if you believe in the ideas of the free market, free speech is one of those ideas, and it relies on uh, on trust in a in a in a foundation, and that relies uh, trust. If you say democracy re relies on trust in money, and if you don't believe in that, if you don't believe in trust in money, then it concentrates uh, up, and it looks very different. I believe in in the best in people shine. Um, when you, when an when an incentive system allows them to shine, so a fair incentive system, and we will see the best things in humanity arise from that. But any technology could be used for good or evil. It's just a layer, yeah. and that technology is a layer that came out of our minds, right? It's actually both. It's both. Um, it's both. You could say it's a product of the uh, of uh, of our uh, of of our intelligence and an amplifier of it. Yeah. But, but if you think about how fast that's happening and how, how fast and what that would, what would look at, if you could control that and, and, and you could control it and say, I need to be the one who controls it for all of those stupid people. And I'm going to look after them. That's a pretty, it's, it's a pretty bad way to build society. I think. Undoubtedly. Um, Jeff just mentioned, uh, you know, that tech can be used for good and bad. And we're getting to a point now where extremely powerful technology is becoming extremely decentralized and accessible to individuals. Uh, whereas extremely powerful tech uh, in the past, you know, let's take nuclear technology, for instance, was sort of concentrated in the hands of a, a handful of, of governments that were controlling the use of, of nuclear weapons. Um, with biotech uh, advances, anyone could unleash uh, biotech, you know, for instance, right? Um, weapons uh, on a mass scale uh, with, you know, no way to efficiently check a small group of people using that powerful weapon. Um, there's the idea of the great filter, which is the, one of the answers to the Fermi paradox, you know, where are all the aliens? And maybe it's that uh, intelligent biological life forms can't get past uh, this decentralized, extremely powerful technology. Uh, so what do you think about that, uh, Austin? How do we survive? What's coming? Um, so this is, I think we are entering a very dangerous time. Um, and that dangerous time, I suspect, will last, should we figure out a way to navigate it, the next 20 to 30, 40 years. Um, and that will be a time when democratization of technologies that offer asymmetric ability to cause harm by very small groups or lone individuals um, can really push the world over an edge very, very, very quickly and very easily. And the world has not shown itself very resilient to mass, mass casualty or very, very large dangerous events. We tend to uh, overreact and the, in, in the overreaction, we usually lose freedom, 
uh, and we usually see a scaling back or potentially even uh, a tip versus tat race to the bottom amongst nations, which is the scary scenario where we actually see society itself roll back to a point where, uh, you know, we get stuck in some alternate, very dystopian future. Um, I remain hopeful that the more accelerated we can focus on things like education, literacy, financial self-sovereignty, um, the more we can support and actually find good government. I know many people feel that the best answer is no government, but I actually believe that uh, a population deserves effective government as hard as that is to see sometimes uh, with you know large institutional uh, you know stagnancy and kind of inherent corruption that happens in large institutions. But we deserve good government, and I think over time, if we're able able to focus on the best natures of ourselves and actually see that there's more win-win scenarios from participating in this technological advance, then the harms, there will still be harms. We will never be able to protect or build a society that's free of abuse of technology. But I think we can be more measured and intelligent in our response to cataclysmic events without having to have society roll back or scale back everyone's success. Jeff? And Brady, yeah, yeah, Brady, yeah, yeah, a lot. <laughs> um, how, um, how much this, uh, and that's actually, again, so, so remember going through this path, I, was, I held Bitcoin before I wrote the book, but, I, but a very little bit. And, and I wasn't sure. I wasn't as sure as I am um, now on it, but I've gone down to the sand on every different type of how, how could we solve this? And knowing that, that when I say we, we wouldn't vote to solve this in the way Bitcoin solves it. Um, and every other system that I've seen would allow money to be manipulated again. Um, and knowing human nature, it's kind of that greed if I could if I could if I could put more power in my own control for somebody else somebody else's expense I know it would be I've come to the realization that that it's only Bitcoin that can produce a, a foundational layer that web 3 and everything else can live on top of and to connect that to governments so so even if you think about today we think we live in a free society. But the, the thing that impacts us most in that free society, money, we have no vote on, on how much it's destroyed in value. So we have no vote in how much time we lose um, and how much we're pitting ourselves against our fellow neighbor um, because of how much money is being manipulated. It's, it's, and, and so if we don't have a vote on that, in a, in a democracy, what do we have a vote on? The most important thing in a democracy, we have, we don't have a vote. So connect that to, to, to now Bitcoin, which removes that. Um, and what it does is it brings truth into governments. And so governments all over the world are gonna compete for labor, capital, entrepreneurs, ideas, just like they do today. Um, and they're going to compete on, but they're going to they're going to move into a system where that competition is based on the truth. And some some governments are going to say it's going to be a ten percent 
uh, GST type of thing on Bitcoin transactions. Some governments are going to say, you move here, it's going to be free, it's going to be less tax, we're going to do this, but we're going to pay for services in another way. And there's going to be a global competition eventually for, for innovation in this space. I see that as, a, as, as just the next step. A pretty, uh, uh, Austin's talking about this 20-year time. If we can move, we can move through it. But moves from a, of a system that will, is decaying and will get worse. It is based on, a, based on a lie that most people believe to something that's based on truth. When something's based on truth and incentive systems are aligned, I think the best in us show up. I love the optimism. Uh, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. A uh, couple of decades for so many reasons. Uh, we are in for a tumultuous time, everyone. And I'm glad that we have thinkers like Jeff and Austin here to have these kinds of discussions. And we're going to need to continue to have these discussions and inform decision-making. Uh, it's, it's really, to me, going to require a lot of education, just individual education. So take responsibility for learning about what's going to happen and you can make informed decisions to sort of navigate the future for yourself and your family. We're going can to move I, over uh, to- Brady, yeah, can I just say one quick thing before we go? Please do. And, and I want to reference that Jack Muller's uh, um, on, on this because he, uh, he, he gets this as well as many of the thought leaders in Bitcoin, or many of the people in Bitcoin do. When it's not to say that there aren't going to be a whole bunch of experiments on Bitcoin on top of Web 2, uh, Layer 2, Layer 3, that don't go as planned. It's not to say that an exchange, when uh, when Bitcoin starts racing up, if you have your money on an exchange or trying to get yield on your Bitcoin, and you're going to lose your Bitcoin uh, because, because of that counterparty risk, um, that there aren't going to be people hurt in the Bitcoin ecosystem. What it, what it says is every experiment on top of the new protocol is making the new protocol stronger. And it actually doesn't matter what those experiments, like in the dot-com collapse, there were a ton of experiments on top of the internet that didn't work. Yep. And, they, and they provided knowledge for all the new entrepreneurs to say which ones would work. That's, yep. just, on a, that's just on a new protocol layer that, that, uh, that the benefit of all of those things benefits society writ large. Well, yeah, we don't experiment. And, yeah, just one point on that. Jeff brings yeah. up such an important point that so many people, I think, forget in the Bitcoin world in the sense that both critics of Bitcoin and fans of Bitcoin, in the sense that there was a period of time in the mid-90s when TCPIP was not a foregone conclusion as the mm -hmm. dominant protocol. There were other protocols that did many aspects of global networking or local networking or multi-site networking better, different. And there was still a lot of competition between protocols from IBM, uh, digital OSI. computers, uh, you know, all sorts of different computer competing protocols. But there was a certain point after the commercialization of the web and after the launch of certain core applications, enough applications, whether it was HTTP and the web and kind of the, through the 96, 97 period, where the momentum started to become almost unstoppable because of the exponential curve. And that didn't mean like TCP version six fixes a whole bunch of things that I version four desperately needed, but very few people upgrade because it was good enough it was good enough to get 
to people to a certain level of global information distribution. And that's the point I think we are at Bitcoin, where we are on that exponential curve. And it's still up to us to make sure we nurture the protocol and that we uh, keep the protocol uh, protected for what it is and yep. continue to innovate at the upper layers to provide all those valuable applications and experiments. But it's by no, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's just the best thing that we have and we should invest in that. Yeah, and, and just, just the, I've decided even in, in what I'm doing, I can't, uh, I, I can't keep up to how many companies that are coming to me in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And I'm really excited about And I thought, how can I lever more of my time into this? I believe in it and we believe in the protocol. So I'm joining as a GP in a, in a new Bitcoin only ecosystem fund. And so, but when you, when you look at what's happening there, it's more and more capital is racing into the system because they know there's an asymmetric bet and all of the innovation that's happening on top of this, uh, the, the system. So more and more people are spending, you're voting with your time, where to, where to spend and make the most impact. It's fantastic. Yeah. We don't innovate on the TCP IP layer anymore. We innovate on it, but we don't, there's, it's not changing, you know, it's, it's improving, but there's not a realistic competitor to replace TCP IP at this point. It's the global uh, foundational protocol, but we do all kinds of experimentation on the web layer on HTTP. Uh, so that's, that's how it works. Uh, I remember in 2017 when I was new trying to figure out how, uh, you know, who, the, options in the scaling debate and that analogy to hey we have a base layer protocol and we build protocols on top of it and stack them and that's how we scale networks uh made a lot of sense to me so glad that that debate's behind us <laughs> don't have to worry about it all right uh we're gonna we're gonna move over to spaces now so uh we'll, we'll meet um, austin and jeff over there i think they're already sitting in there as speakers so it'll be easy to hop over I will join in just a moment as well. We'll see you guys over there. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Perfect. Oh man, uh, I love it. I love uh, talking to these two guys. You know, the future uh, is a lot more than just Bitcoin and the monetary difficulties that we face. It is also the upheaval that will arise from exponential technologies that will be compounded in their speed of advancement by a deflationary money as is described in, in the price of tomorrow jeff's book so this is all happening over the next couple of decades and like austin said any prediction that a technologist makes about how long it will take for these technologies to reach the market should be cut in half because of this exponential trend so things like using nanotechnology to map your brain structure and save that digitally. So if you were in a tragic accident or beheaded or whatever, you could literally clone your biological body uh, through DNA replication uh, and you know, remap your brain with all of your memories intact. Uh, this kind of stuff it, it will be possible with these technologies. And it blows your mind. We don't think it's possible uh, we also didn't think it would be possible to hold uh, so much computing power and access to all the world's information in your pocket when computers were invented in the 50s and 60s. Uh, actually, there were a couple of people who probably could have seen that. Arthur C. Clarke nailed it pretty well. Uh, so 
it's going to be incredible. We've got a lot to prepare for and think about. So we've spent a lot of time as Bitcoiners learning about money and how it works, how it should work, and how we can navigate the next 10 years or two years or three years as Bitcoin becomes the dominant global money. But we also should think about all these exponential technologies and, and read into them and stay up to date and think about how we can navigate that world as well. All right, I'll meet you over on Spaces. Hey, everyone. Jeff and Austin, did you make it over? Yes, I'm here. Okay, fantastic. All right, we've already got some people here requesting to ask questions. So we will get started here with JH. Glad you as a speaker. Ignacio, I'm going to add you as a speaker as well. You'll be up next. Anybody listening, please do raise your hand and ask a question. This is a great opportunity to talk to these guys, so don't pass up on it. Okay, next up is Rob. Hey, Brady. How's it going? Good, uh, well, man. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me up. Really appreciate it. Of course. Jeff, nice, nice uh, speaking again. Awesome. Nice to meet you over spaces. You guys are awesome. Thanks for doing this. Um, I guess... Uh, Maybe a question for both of you, and, and Jeff, I know you've talked about this, but I guess over the last year, you know, so, so much is happening in the world right now as, as we speak. What's, what's your sense to, like, the degree to which at least a part of government, especially in the West, like, let's just take the U.S. and Canada, um, maybe on, like, the defense side, for example, is, you know embracing or rejecting the conversation that we're having right now as it relates to Bitcoin specifically. Jeff, drop not, down. Austin, you want to take that? Sure. Um, I'm not sure. In terms of Bitcoin itself, uh, I have not heard a, a lot of informed discussions amongst, especially in kind of the defense related, but certainly in terms of, uh, you know, military intelligence, FinCEN, uh, the monetary uh surveillance network, there is a very large awareness that this is a very double-edged sword, that the U.S. power by backing the U.S. petrodollar and the power structure that has emerged around being the financial center of the world is slowly shifting. And that's shifting due to uh, energy wars, that's shifting due to some of the dangers that present uh, society in uh, economic and climate-related mi uh, migration, uh, whether or not you believe in those things or you just observe them happening, certainly people are fleeing autocratic regimes and they're looking to uh, arrive in countries that offer them more freedom. And that mass displacement of people that we're seeing both happen currently in uh, Europe but we've been seeing it throughout Latin America. We're going to see it ex more extensively throughout Asia. That presents a massive challenge for countries to say, okay, how do we deal with that? You know, and do we want citizens to be able to migrate and move with their money? And what does that offer us in terms of both risk? Because we lose control of the money supply. We lose control of being the single arbiter of monetary value in the world versus the benefits that that provides. And so, you know, if you look at something like the military report on uh, the threats to uh, on climate change, the military has actually come out quite intelligently, I believe, in my opinion, and said that, you know, one of the greatest risks they face as a military is the changing dynamics of the world order due to 
climate related issues. And that can be mass, you know, mass collapse of cultures, uh, you know, very large climate related events that cause worldwide disaster that are forced nations to react or could push a nation very quickly into uh, uh, instability. And so um, how monetary sovereignty maps to that, I don't think has been explored enough. I do think some of the central banks have been studying this uh, longer, but studying it in much more of a defensive manner as opposed to looking at it for what opportunities. And that's why I think what's happening in El Salvador is so exciting, because if we saw four or five other nations like El Salvador start to stand up and say, you know what? we're dealing with our debt or we're dealing with financing our economic development through another mechanism other than the IMF, other than the institutions of the past, and they are successful, I think that can offer a much more promising opportunity for U.S. foreign policy, for G8 foreign policy, where countries can actually start to look at and say, okay, our our subsidies, our, our method of doing debt forgiveness doesn't have to be the only way to do economic partnership and development. There's actually a way to level the playing field and allow these countries to become self-sufficient such that their citizens don't feel they need to flee. Um, and that is the promise that I think uh, lies in Bitcoin that is being overlooked by a lot of these government institutions who tend to think uh, either in a very siloed nature you know, to FinCEN, everything is a money laundering tra transaction. Uh, and so it's very hard within that system. Jeff talks about this a lot. It's hard within the system to see outside the system of another way or another world. Rob, do you want to repeat the question for Jeff real quick and he can yeah. riff on sure. it? For sure. Yeah, definitely. And awesome. Thanks for that. That was awesome. Jeff, good to uh, good to speak to you again. Um, the, the question before was was kind of, you know, we, we spoke about this before, but obviously some time has passed and a lot's happening in the world that maybe we you know didn't expect as recently as three to six months ago. But at, at the state level, especially in the West, like, you know, take our two governments in the United States and Canada. To what extent in your experience are at least certain corners of the government either accepting or, or rejecting the conversation that we're having right now about Bitcoin? Um, and I, I threw out, like, for example, the defense establishment, which which also. You guys hear? Can you hear me? Got you now, Jeff. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I, I did hear the question. So, so I think what what just like Bitcoin's emerging in each of us, and as you see it, you can't unsee it. The same thing is happening to po all of the population, and and that population includes our government because the government is us. Um, and some people see it earlier, some people don't see it. And, and I suspect it's going to be, it's going to be an, an election issue um, and more and more of an election issue as we move, move on. And as a result, you can see this all, all across US and Canada where politicians entering the space are, many of them are pro Bitcoin and for the reasons we're laying out here. So it, it's just, it's bound to change over time. Um, but as Austin correctly identified, an existing power structure tries to retain its might through the power structure. Um, and, and consequently, they don't see what's happening. They typically don't see what's happening. It happens in every business. Um, an existing monopoly dies. 
because they can't innovate. They can't see where the innovation could change their uh, change and provide better value um, to what they did before. So they typically fight it the same way. Same way. So that fight is just happening at the highest level of all, at the level of money. Um, and so it's bound to be really complicated. It's bound to confuse a lot of people, but that's exactly what's happening. And and um, it, I, I want to just pick up on one thing that, that Austin uh, said. So if you think about the US military um, and, and kind of having to petrodollar system, money, and having essentially a, a privileged access to being able to print energy in the form of oil, um, that did that that rise of a superpower um, around the world. But as China rose and then stopped buying uh, uh, U.S. bonds in 2014, I believe it was, um, essentially by pegging their currency to the U.S. and 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 keeping it low, um, there is actually no way out for the U.S. because because. Because it's essentially you've got the entire, um, you, you, you have to keep on transferring more and more control to China, which rises as a result of that peg. So even from a military standpoint, um, it, what should have happened a long time ago is China's labor rate should have gone up and they should have done less exporting to the, to the world uh, as and US should, it, U.S. would have had more more business in the U.S. from that natural rise in currency, but once currencies can be manipulated to each other, you 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 get this constant battle. So in U.S. interests as well, the existing petrodollar system um, will break, and it'd be the it's the worst thing for the U.S. to have this keep keep uh, keep on going. In fact, I, I'm surprised that they can't see that the Bitcoin is the best way out of this. Um, because it's because it's a um, if you believe in individual rights and freedoms, I don't see any other path that you get there without without Bitcoin. Thanks so much, Rob uh, Ignacio. I saw your hand up, and you were one. Of I guess you stepped away again. All right, let's go with. Uh... Yeah, sorry, sorry for <laughs> experiencing technical difficulties. I just wanted to thank everybody for this interesting podcast yeah. and say hello to everybody. And Jeff Booth, I yeah. heard uh, audio book. And my question is: Do you think we can convince Trump? Donald Trump and uh, Elon Musk to go uh, to run to make a presidential ticket and adopt uh, or facilitate Bitcoin adoption. Thank you. God bless. I think the most important thing about Bitcoin is it's uh, uh, is it doesn't rely on anybody. And that includes me and includes everybody. It, um, it truly is out of people's hands. So when it's we true. when we equate. When we when we put too much power in one person's hands, human beings have a have 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 a way of disappointing us or changing their mind later on, um, and and you shouldn't have that much control in a currency or, or a business that is impactful to every person on the planet, um, 
in one or two or 10 people's hands. It's just too much. It's too much risk. So the best thing about Bitcoin is it doesn't need any heroes. It doesn't need me. It's going to emerge. Uh, it's going to emerge anyways. It doesn't need any of us. Um, the, the, the point in this is each, each one of us that are bringing on other people who start to see it, it just keeps emerging. But, but I, I dislike um, when anybody says anybody should have that much power, including Elon. So uh, an important point uh, that some people don't realize, Jeff and I often talk about the comparison of Bitcoin to TCP IP and the evolution. And there were a number of points when TCP IP's global and free nature were under attack in its evolution. And some people are aware of this history, but some people, uh, you know, Oftentimes this happened very low level and it happened behind the scenes. So in 1996 or 1997, uh, the U.S. government had given a contract to one individual, John Postel, who invented a mail blocking system. Paul Vicks and uh, John Postel uh, were at a university and they were given control of the global root keys for the entire Internet that mapped IP numbers to domains. And they came back as the Internet became very successful. The U.S. government came back and said, your contract's up. Please hand it back to us. And uh, John Postel famously said, no, I'm sorry. I refuse to hand it back to you. You can sue me. You can take me to court. But I, I believe that the Internet belongs to everybody in the world. And you need to establish an organization that represents everybody because the U.S. government shouldn't control this. And that was a critical key point that happened in the evolution of TCPIP, where that power was turned over to the uh, uh, IANA, the uh, Internet Association for Number Assignment. And but once that battle was fought, the kind of course of the Internet was able to evolve where it wasn't dependent on one nation. It wasn't dependent on one person because John Postel rightfully saw what I think Jeff just pointed out. No one should have too much control over this. And I think Bitcoin has faced some of those civil war moments. I hope most of them are behind us. But uh, some would say that the block size wars were one of those critical moments where a number of principled engineers stood up for decentralization over a number of companies being able to dictate the protocol. But now that those wars are fought, I believe that Bitcoin is much more in the hands of each individual. And it's up to each of us, as Jeff pointed out, to bring on other people to help them educate themselves. And uh, reliance on any one person would be so counterethical and counterfactual to how Bitcoin is supposed to operate. Great. Thanks, guys. Let's go to Trap. Thanks for your patience. Uh, thanks, everyone, for the uh, for the amazing conversations. Um, I really have a very specific um question regarding uh, nation states wanting to adopt Bitcoin, but the infrastructure being, uh, being lacking. And what I mean by that is the, the on and off ramps that are like, for example, El Salvador, how they came about adopting Bitcoin, that ability to have the on and off ramps with Strike and others. How do we get that infrastructure in East Africa and Central South Africa, which I've been going to in the last few years, 
the biggest thing is they some of those countries are using the US dollar as an unofficial currency. That is their main thing. All their remittances are closed systems, but that's how they get their money. And they literally um, make payments and process payments and do business with a text-based messaging system. That's a closed loop to actually basically send money across to each other. Whether it's a vendor in the middle of nowhere, they'll literally use their mobile phone and they're familiar with something like a lightning network, but bit and all the generation. But I just wanted to know, how do we get countries, if they want to come on board, but the infrastructure is lacking, how can we get that sort of infrastructure built with the help of Bitcoin community? That's the on and off ramps that are, like for example, El Salvador, how they came about adopting Bitcoin, that ability to have the on and off ramps with Strike and others. How do we get that infrastructure in East Africa and Central South Africa, which I've been going to in the last few years, the biggest thing is they. some of those countries are using the US dollar as an unofficial currency. That is their main thing. All their remittances are closed systems, but that's how they get their money. And they literally um, make payments and process payments and do business with a text-based messaging system. That's a closed loop to actually basically send money across to each other. Whether it's a vendor in the middle of nowhere, they'll literally use their mobile phone and they're familiar with something like an, a lightning network, but bit and all the generation. But I just wanted to know, how do we get countries, if they want to come on board, but the infrastructure is lacking, how can we get that sort of infrastructure built with the help of Bitcoin community? That's one of the biggest things I've found when people say, hey, Bitcoin is very easy, download a wallet, you can, you know, you can access it. But the hardest part is if you have cash and there is no way to get your cash into the digital space, and the companies or the people that control that are closed systems and they do that for their own uh, business purposes and they won't allow you. But if you brought that ab ability to provide an on and off ramp, then they can trade internationally. They buy things internationally. How can we help them with an on and off ramp liquidity process in these nations that really want to get on board and take part of it? That's my question. Thank you. Once this is, you have an open decentralized monetary network, it's open to anyone to play. And yes, the on and off ramps um, are, are challenging in some countries and in some countries will get further challenging. Um, but it, it, as each new test happens on top of this network, El Salvador, you could consider a test. The bond issuance in Salvador, you could issue a test. You could say as a test. As each one of these reinforces and, and gains more momentum, it provides it provides what worked, what didn't work, for more nations wanting to, to wanting to solve this. And and when you're looking at the system, kind of where it is now, it's easy to get disillusioned and say, "Oh, it's not happening fast enough," because you want your Bitcoin to go to two hundred thousand tomorrow. It's happening at a crazy rate. The innovation in this space is happening at a crazy rate. Um, and and each of these tests, some won't work. Some won't work, some, but uh, um, but each one of them gives more guidance to the next one. Yeah, um, there's a famous that famous comment that occurs in uh, the movie Jurassic Park by Jeff Goldblum, where he says, "Life finds a way." Um, I, I like to believe in an open, decentralized protocol, innovation, entrepreneurship 
uh, and money, actually, incentives will find a way. And uh, this is to Jeff's point, because whatever we see currently as the problems that plague certain nations, those issues will be resolved and are actually getting solved in such a rapid manner. And we're actually seeing that experiment occur in certain nation states. So uh, certainly El Salvador had some hiccups. And there, as the first, it made some mistakes and I believe are trying to address those mistakes. But every other nation from there can learn from those and we will see more innovation and we will see more examples of better systems with better liquidity. Um, but we also just see the community find a way. So as capital was fleeing from China, we saw massive amounts of really kind of weird uh, systems being developed around Macau, where people would bring jewelry to Macau, trade it in for casino chips, and then have use, use the casinos to have their money flee the country, which was a very kind of underground hack to uh, capital controls that were uh, forcing people to keep their money within China. So whether or not this occurs at the local Bitcoin level, whether or not this occurs through partnerships with some of those mobile gateways and some of those archaic systems who then upgrade and find that using lightning as a rail uh, provides them such economic advantages that they start moving onto lightning as a base uh, payments and money transfer rail, we will see innovation find a way as long as the protocol remains open and the incentives allow people to succeed. Could I have a quick follow-up to a, a second part of a question? Go ahead. Uh, so the biggest thing that I'm really talking about is when a nation does not have a banking access. So there is no way to sort of access the digital nature and the decentralized nature of Bitcoin when you can't really get to that without a banking system. There is no banking system. And what they consider a way of you know, running their financials is really a closed loop system, which is basically controlled by remittance businesses that have a vested interest. How do we get that access to even do a pilot project where we do a small area that can actually test out like a small bit of, you know, you know, access to liquidity or access to something like Strike. If there's any way to get those kind of people to get in touch with people that really want to test these things on a local level in a country, it can take at least years, but at least getting those, you know, pilot programs, but just getting the access to, to be able to get the online ability is what I'm really talking about. When a country does not have a banking system that connects to any way of actually, you know, using your money in a digital space to then be able to transact or be part of the Bitcoin, you know, network. That is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah I just that, that was Bitcoin Beach before El Salvador. Right. It was exactly what you're talking about. And that thing will, that I think I would suspect that's happening everywhere or in many places right now. Yeah, I just I don't know. An example of that. So when we first saw micro lending uh, being developed by Muhammad Yunus, and the Indian phone lady uh, microeconomy that developed there, it dealt with similar problems where you had, uh, you know, a local entrepreneur who would get access to a cell phone through a microloan, and they were dealing in community favors and chip, almost gift economy, to be able to resell and be able to provide access to a shared resource, which was a telephone, 
at the time where telephones were very costly. Um, and so we saw innovation in micro lending, in local co uh, community currencies uh, that were off the banking system be able to emerge. And even inside of Bitcoin now, if you want to take a look, there's new experiments with Chomi and eCash and what is called Fediment, which is a mechanism of doing local currencies inside of a community where uh, that are totally outside of the banking system, but backed and layered into Bitcoin. So there will be technical innovations that allow these pilot projects. And there are actually two, I believe, African pilot projects right now doing experiments with Fediment, which is a mechanism to do a local currency, almost a local uh, coupon system that is tied and backed by Bitcoin and tied to a Bitcoin network using uh, Lightning. So I think we will see these innovations occur and these pilots. It's just happening slowly, but then suddenly. Thank you very much for that, guys. Appreciate it. Excellent, JH. You were here from the start, but uh, you didn't. You didn't respond. So I'm just checking back in. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and put you back down. Who's next? How? Let's hear from you. Hey, Bradin. Thanks. So, you know, it looks like the U.S. is quickly becoming, if not already, uh, one of the biggest uh, miners um, in, in, in the world. So um, after China's you know, miners relocated and things like that. So I started, now some of my concerns is really, um, because uh, it's so centralized in the U.S. and because these are quickly becoming like the big companies who you know, do the majority of mining. My concern here is that since they are public companies that the governments may impose certain rules that they need to follow and, and, and maybe do something where I say, hey, in a particular uh, transaction, you can't include this in the block. So, you know, I started having some sort of those concerns with sort of government intervention with a centralization of miners. And I just want to see what you guys think about that because I, I just feel that that's something that we need to kind of address or at least think about. So any, any thoughts on that situation? Probably just a reinforcement of what Austin said before. It, it, Jack is doing some incredible work here to be able to make this further decentralized, um, and and, cons uh, and as are other companies, as is Blockstream and others. Um, but uh, um, but I think that is a, I think that's important. I, um, as that as that same thing happens in the U.S. and remember, it's it's way more decentralized than the big miners. But I do I, I, I get the point with how much capital could go into this, how it could centralize. But it's also, it'll also happen around the world. And I think it'll keep the decentralization, but it is an important part, I think, to, that's one layer. Um, obviously the nodes is more important, is an important layer too. But, uh, but, um, but it is, I think it is important to watch. And I think, and I, I think that the, there's gonna be a whole bunch of innovation in the space to make sure that it is de it remains decentralized. Yeah, on a technical level. So I definitely agree there is always that risk. And when we model 
different threats to the Bitcoin network. Certainly, anytime centralization of mining or uh, economic, both geographic centralization of mining or uh, mining that is subject to any type of political pressure, subpoena pressure. We saw it recently with uh, sanctions that went to the exchanges uh, asking for the enforcement of sanctions against certain addresses. Um, both in Canada and recently with the war uh, currently occurring in Europe. Um, the, the two most important factors, I think, to continue to look at is uh, the availability and uh, continued distribution and hopefully global, uh, a broader availability of ASIC mining chips, because that sense tends to self-correct. As long as there are multiple supply chains, multiple access to ASIC chips, coming off multiple foundries and the economic incentive to continue uh, to invest in that is somewhat driven by the price. And that's where, uh, you know, Bitcoin's slow but continued price appreciation benefits because it provides a lot of funding for the investment in the capital cycle for this. And it allows companies like uh, Jack and Blockstream and others to invest in more open source and distributed ASIC manufacturing. So that's kind of one attack vector or issue to look at. And the trend there has been to, away from centralization, where we had one or two mining companies who dominated the entire ASIC production uh, industry. We now have multiple companies, and I believe it's becoming more decentralized and will over time. And there are great people investing, as uh, Jeff pointed out, uh, including you know my former company, Blockstream. Um, the other factor is on a technical level, some of the changes occurring on the mining pool software and the new stratum pool, uh, which allows you to participate in mining pools where you separate out the mining rewards and the financial participation in uh, shared mining pools with the policy decision. Because there, the inclusion of transactions and blocks is no longer solely decided by the mining pool when they win a block. It's actually decided in aggregate by all the mining people who participate. And those changes that are being uh, studied and undertaken, uh, I mean, Slushpool has done some work on this. Matt Corello has done some work, allow for more fair and more distributed mining pools where simply allocating or participating in a mining pool does not uh, deprive you of any voting power on how your ASIC mining power, uh, how your ASIC uh, hash rate is making decisions in the network. And, and those things, in combination with some of what's happening on Lightning Layer 2, I think make a lot of the policy cho choke points uh, less important. And, and when the policy cho choke points are ineffective, you rob the incentives for governments to push that through. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that's a really important development. And I think I think Matt's work on BetterHash is being, or a lot of it is being merged into the latest release of Stratum. Is that right, Austin? I have not tracked it at that level, but I know the work continues. I know a number of people undertook it um, I know that uh, I believe some of the changes already have shown up and other changes are being planned. Um, and that's just that builds more fair and equitable mining. It, it really, really changes how centralization in everything from voting for protocol changes to uh, what gets included in a block get decided.
Absolutely. Okay, uh, DJ Satoshi, get your hand up. Come on up. Thank you, Brady. Thank you guys for hosting this amazing space. And um, thank you, Austin and Jeff, for being here and sharing your time with us and your knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. Um, I mean, a, a lot of my questions were asked earlier, um, some regarding the government side, and another part was to the petrodollar. Um, so I guess I'll just elaborate towards that. Um, I'm concerned about like the government putting out regulations, um, especially with this new executive order that they just put out regarding how they want to look into CBDCs. And they also placed it in the bill with, you know, looking into basically Bitcoin and, you know, they called it other cryptos. So what do you guys think is a, a like a healthy level potentially of regulation, even though I kind of am against any regulation? Do you guys see any regulation potentially good or do you think that it's just a bad road to go down altogether? Just so, a heads up. So, yeah, go ahead, Austin. But just a heads up to everyone. Jeff had to, to hop. So we'll do about 10 more minutes with Austin if you can, and then we'll shut it down. Sure, happy to. Um, you know, everyone's always afraid of that adage. I'm, I'm here from the government. I'm here to help you. Uh, but, you know, and that's a very easy response to be distrustful of government. There's a lot of dysfunction. Um, but I don't always attribute to malice what can easily, more easily be explained by incompetence. And so a lot of times there are, is, there are very well-intentioned members of the government who believe that certain aspects of fraud, for instance, that we saw in the ICO ecosystem, or certain aspects of uh, you know, totally unmetered risk in the area where we have 125x leverage, uh, the harm that that can do to uh, people. Now, we can all argue that people are self-informed, that everyone has the right to get burned, but if consumers or first-time people, um, if their first experience with Bitcoin was BitConnect, um, that can easily sour someone from financial lifeboats and financial sovereignty. So I think we would all agree that we want people like BitConnect and the operators of those type of criminal enterprises arrested, investigated, and held to account. So um, in the initiative, as I read the policy, um, I think the industry's done pretty well with Coin Center and with other people in lobbying to educate uh, regulators about the difference between Bitcoin and most other coins. I believe that the best outcome could be uh, establishing some guardrails and establishing um, some better understanding of how these ecosystems and how these things might be treated. So some of the uh, broken tax treatment of Bitcoin um, some of the bills that are being proposed that actually begin to treat Bitcoin more fairly, um, some of even the accounting rules that should come uh, that currently punish uh, large companies from holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet because of how FASB, the uh, Accountants Standards Board, treats Bitcoin as an intangible asset. These are all things that will hopefully mature over time. And once those play, level playing rules are there, I think it makes it easier for certain investments or certain decision and innovation to happen. That, that is the optimistic view. Certainly, we could see uh, a more negative view, but I have not seen that so far from the United States. Even the approach to central bank digital currencies, I think, could actually provide a, an advantage to uh, Bitcoin. 
either by establishing standards for transparency of stablecoins and regulation around stablecoins that would remove a lot of the risk or doubt people have over certain stablecoins and may remove some risky behavior that exists inside of the stablecoin space, um, depending on what we know and how much we know about what's occurring. So there's an opportunity where transparency, accountability, and some basic playing rules as long as they do not prejudice Bitcoin, that some of this uh, harmonization of rules and strategy that the Biden administration called for in this executive order could actually benefit. But there's just as equal danger that there's some very bad policy that gets written. And so I think it's on a lot of us to keep our eyes open and to make sure that regulators understand that Bitcoin could be and may soon become a single voter issue, such that if you vote badly or if you support bad policy on Bitcoin, people write letters, people show up. And I actually heard this from a number of senators when the last, there was a provision in one of the last bills that uh, was going to be very hor horrible for Bitcoin. And they basically had more letters and more calls to the uh, Senate office than on any other issue. And I think that woke them up to the fact that this is an issue people care about. And we need to make sure that they remain on guard so that they, you know, they understand that people vote around Bitcoin as a single voter issue. Yeah, absolutely right. Thank you so much. Um, to your point, I mean, that's kind of the mission that I'm trying to take as well is to try to like help people learn about Bitcoin and understand what it really is, which is sound money. Um, so um, to Trapper's question, he had asked, like, how do these countries get onboarded basically if they have no access to like banks, you know? So I know that there are a lot of people in other countries, including like in West Africa and Nigeria specifically, there's people that are opening up their own exchanges and teaching the population about Bitcoin and helping onboard them. Um, so, you know, Trapper, I, I recommend that if you're interested in that kind of work to look into it and to maybe start something to do that, because you're absolutely right that these countries do need help to get more people to use Bitcoin because they actually need it not only as a store of value, but they actually need it as a medium of exchange. Um, and just another question real quick regarding the energy crisis. Um, do you see like the petrodollar dying in terms of US dollar? And then if so, how could Bitcoin help with that? Like how could we start denominating energy in Bitcoin? Um Dominant monopolies have an incredibly long survivability rate until it reaches some crisis point. And as both a reserve currency with the, you know, the, the preferred status that the U.S. dollar has as a reserve currency and uh, frankly, just, you know, some of the slowness that it takes an entire energy system to move away from uh, a system that benefits many, many, many people. Um, that I don't see it dying overnight. And actually, I, I almost would hate to see it die overnight because any abrupt death of an existing system causes, uh, in many cases, unnecessary harm. Um, and so uh, often, Greg and uh, Jeff often have often spoken on SWAN um, uh, Greg Foss about uh, a soft landing, about these two systems existing in parallel while we have more time to educate people, while we have more time 
to migrate. And, you know, the reality is, is the world is not deficient in energy. It's deficient in energy distribution and storage. And those issues are being solved thanks to exponential moves in technology. Batteries, wireless transmission of power. I mentioned uh, on the earlier call, uh, like autonomous drone and drilling technology that can run power lines uh, with robots through mountains and over large surfaces at one five thousandth of the cost of previous utility companies. These issues will be solved, and hopefully they'll be solved powered in part by Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is powering some of these changes in the in the grid. And as that begins to happen, one day the petrodollar and the surrounding systems around it will wake up like video rental stores and Blockbuster. But I'm not wishing for that day to be tomorrow because, you know, if it happens too quick and everyone was left with Netflix back when bandwidth was running at postage, you know, very choppy postage size, people would be deprived of their joy of movies from both ends. And everyone throws up their hands and saying, I hate this future. I, I, I'm not getting what I want. Um, and they rush back to the old system and double down and make sure that Blockbuster has another 10 years of innovation. So the timing of these things is important. <clears throat> Thanks, DJ Satoshi. All right. Let's get one more in and uh, we'll do it from Power and Bitcoin. Are you there? And uh, we'll do it from Power and Bitcoin. Are you there? Uh, yeah. Thanks, Brady. Yep, yep. Um, what's going on, Jeff? Austin? Hey, I just wanted to ask if you guys could explain how money printing and inflation works. Right? Like I've heard diff different people say that money printing doesn't cause inflation, right? Like right now it's from the supply chains can you guys just give like you know a brief you know overview of like how money printing and inflation works in the real economy sure um jeff is probably way more qualified than i am to he's studied this and done it but uh, the basic idea is that um as you increase uh, kind of at no cost with money printing the available chips on the table, um, the prices uh, inevitably go up because what people are willing to pay changes. But if the base currency, the underlying asset that is representing that trade has not changed, then there's less for everyone. If you imagine sitting down at a poker table and everyone puts in $100 to buy their chips, um, and everyone gets a hundred, you know, a hundred chips for their hundred dollars. You have nine hundred chips in a nine-person poker game. If throughout the course of the night, people are getting more chips, but no one's put in more hundred dollars, right? Someone says, "Oh, I want more chips, please." Oh, I lost my money. Please, uh, I want to rebuy. Give me more chips, such that by the end of the night. There's now 4,000 chips on the table and you won half of those chips and you go to cash out and say, I would like my uh, 2,000 chips, please. And they say, I'm sorry, we only have 900 chips. You've just seen your money devalued. 
you worked really, really hard to increase the size of your stack. You moved from 100 chips that you bought in on the assumption that if you made it into 2,000 chips, you would walk out with 2,000 chips. But because no one else contributed and all these extra chips came into play for free, all your effort at best will give you half of the 400 of the 900 chips. So all of your effort, what you thought was 2000 chips is actually only worth 450. And that's if everyone else agrees on how you split up the $900 that's left, which rarely happens. So that's kind of the most obvious and simple example that as long as you still play for play money, the, the con can continue going on. But the minute someone stands up and says, I don't believe in this anymore, everyone realizes that the money is artificial and it's not real. You've been playing with Monopoly money. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Austin. Really appreciate it, man. My um, pleasure, Brady. And thank yeah. you to all the people who listened in. Thank you for your questions and the work you're doing to understand Bitcoin, to share uh, what you know about Bitcoin. Uh, as Jeff mentioned earlier, uh, this isn't reliant on any one person. Bitcoin exists without me, without him, without all of us, but it doesn't exist at all without any of us. Absolutely well said. We do this every other week, usually on Wednesdays. Next, uh, The next episode in two weeks will be our quarterly report that we do at the end of every quarter with Preston Pish and Andy Edstrom. It's always a great time. I think we've done seven of these now, and we have a lot of fun. Those are done uh, in prime time, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And those are the only shows we usually do prime time. Otherwise, they're at, uh, at this time in the middle of the day. We do an hour live stream video on YouTube. The audio is piped in here, and then we hop over to Spaces and do a Q&A. You can get all of this as a podcast, uh, including both hours, at swansignalpodcast.com, or just search Swansignal in your podcast app. So subscribe to that and catch these. We have amazing guests. We pair them up. It's a unique format in the space to get uh, two great minds together and uh, see what we can uh, come up with and uh, ideas we can generate. So it's, it's a lot of fun to kind of get out of that one-on-one -on -one format and, and do this uh, two-guest format. All right. Thanks, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful Wednesday and take care. Thanks to Jeff and Austin for joining us. You can find Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Booth. You'll find Austin at Austin Hill. I am at Citizen Bitcoin, and you'll find Swan at Swan Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast and found it useful on your journey. It's fun to join us live on the YouTube broadcast at youtube.com slash swansignal. Head over there, subscribe, and turn on the notifications, and also follow Swan Bitcoin on Twitter at Swan Bitcoin, and you can listen in live on the Spaces broadcast and join us after the show for a live Q&A. You can subscribe to this podcast if you're not already at swansignalpodcast.com. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com.